Yeah. It's like a big party in here today. Last week, if you weren't with us, we had just a wonderful Sunday. We launched into Christmas season, celebrating with our Spanish-speaking congregation. Uh, the women from the Spanish-speaking congregation made tamales. If you weren't here, you missed out, but a lot of us uh, benefited from that and really enjoyed those. It was a wonderful, wonderful morning. I had the privilege of preaching with my good friend, Pastor Ruben. We were up here together. I was translating for him. It was pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> We also had 16 people last week declare Jesus as Lord through baptism. That was a win. We had a, a, a number on Sunday and then an entire family group that came as a result of our Sunday service and kind of responded uh, in the, after service was over. It was really a good, good uh, week and just so fun. And what an honor and privilege it is to be a part of people like giving their lives to Jesus and watching him do his work. And so it was truly a Sunday that was wonderful. Um, this morning, we are going to uh, continue our series that we started last week called Among Us. And for the next few weeks, we're going to dive in together into just the first few verses, just the beginning of John chapter 1. And the whole goal here is to stop and pause and remember why we are truly celebrating this Christmas season and to remember who we celebrate and why we celebrate and, and what Christmas is all about. Today we're looking at the first four verses of the Gospel of John. These are some of the richest, most inspiring words of the entire Bible. And so if you have a Bible, you can pull it out, open to John chapter 1. Um, again, the first four verses is what we'll look at. I will, I'll read them for us here and then we'll get started. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. See, in the Bible there are four accounts, four biographies of Jesus' life. Four different authors record his life and ministry in what we call the Gospels. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are set in time. They say things like, during the time of King Herod, or in the day when John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness, or in the year when Caesar Augustus issued a decree. They, they zoom in, they sort of take the camera and they begin focusing in on this moment when Jesus was born. They, they zoom in on the barn in Bethlehem, on the shepherds and on the wise men and, and on, the, on the manger. But John, our gospel writer today, he does something different. Instead of zooming in, John starts his story by zooming out. He pans back from this moment. He moves away through the years and decades and centuries and millennia to before time began, to, to before creation. And he says this, to rightly understand the Jesus story, you must understand that it is part of a larger story, the ultimate story. And John does this for a very specific reason, because as we walk into Bethlehem, as we come to the manger, he wants us to know who it is that we will meet there. John wants us to stand 
in awe of this baby boy. And that's the title of our message today, Stand in Awe. Friends, awe is the feeling of being overwhelmed with amazement. Awe is reverence, fear, and wonder caused by something majestic. Awe is the feeling people will have with Jesus throughout the Gospels when they realize just who it is they have encountered. Simon Peter and his fishing buddies, when Jesus arrived on the scene, told them to cast their nets out once more. And after catching nothing all night long in a single cast, had more than a full net of fish, and he was in awe. The crowd, after Jesus, looked at the paralyzed man and said, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the crowd stood in awe. The disciples on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus came to them, walking on the water through the wind and waves, and they were in awe. The centurion at the cross, who stood guard and watched how this man died, and he was in awe. You see, time and time again, when people meet Jesus, they are struck with Ah, and so this morning, John is going to give us reason to stand in awe. He's going to give us four reasons to be again amazed by the manger. He's going to say, here is why Christmas is so significant. Here's his first reason. John says, stand in awe because Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the word. John here is telling us that when all things are having their beginning, the word, who we'll find out later, is Jesus Christ, is already there. Before God said, let there be light, before there was day and night, before there was evening and morning, before there was land and oceans and fish and animals, before man and woman took their very first breath, there was Jesus. John says, he has always been I remember when Amy and I were first married, we took a trip back east um, with my folks to celebrate my brother's graduation from the Coast Art Academy. It was my, our first time as adults back to the East Coast. And on that trip, we went to Boston. And while we were in Boston, Boston, we did the Freedom Trail. How many here have been to Boston and done the Freedom Trail? And we kind of cruised around and visited all these historic sites. And I remember there was this moment where we were sitting in this church that was hundreds of years old. And it felt so significant and special. And I remember wondering to myself, why is this so significant? Why are we as humans so drawn to old places? I mean, people will travel the world just to visit old places, old buildings, old houses, old churches, places that have been around for a long time. Why are we so drawn to old places? And the answer, I think, is this. We love to be part of a larger story. We were created to be a part of a larger story. We have this need to feel connected to the past, this desire to be part of a history and linked to those who come before us. And in these opening verses, John tells us that Jesus is the one that comes to connect us not just to the recent past, not just to a human historical past, but to an eternal past. 
to the very beginning, to the very meaning of life. Jesus connects you and me to the very meaning of life. John says, your story is a part of a larger story. It's like John pulls the curtain back and says, let me tell you about the one who is behind all of this majesty and glory that you can see in the universe. Jesus is eternal. And by the way, when we say Jesus is eternal, just as a clarifying point, this is not simply a statement about time. Sometimes when we talk about God being eternal, we have this image of him being this really, really, really old guy. This is perhaps why the number one image of God is a really old guy with a long gray beard. Friends, God is not Gandalf. In fact, God is not old. He does not age. We as humans age. And because of sin, we decline and decay. For many of you, this is a reality I do not need to convince you of. Our joints begin to ache and our muscles hurt and our hair begins to grow in places it should not. And we begin to lose our mental filters and we feel suddenly free to share our opinions far too freely. You know who you are. (laughs) But this is not how it is for God. He will never need a hip replacement. When John describes Jesus as before creation, as eternal, he is talking about the kind of being that Jesus is. That he is the answer to what life is truly about. He says in the beginning was, and our NIV translation says, the word. In Greek, it's the word logos. It's where we get our word logic. And the logos in John's day was this philosophical term that described the power behind the universe. Logos was the thing that put all of existence into the logical order that we see. The logos was that which gives life and direction and meaning. In other words, Greek philosophers, and they were were very into this in John's day in the first century. Greek philosophers would look at the world and they would ask big questions. They would ask like universal questions. They would ask the questions that we are still asking today. What is the meaning of all this? Why are we here? What am I living for? What is life about? And intuitively they knew that there must be something behind it all. And they called that thing the logos. But by the time John writes, Many of the philosophers had determined that the Logos was unknowable. That maybe there just aren't any answers. And so because of this, because of this growing sense and this growing opinion that there aren't any answers, that we can never understand what's behind it all and the meaning of life, because of this, two primary schools of thought emerge. And friends, I bring these up because I believe we have the same two schools of thought in our day. First, there were the Epicureans. And the Epicureans said, well... Since there are no answers to why we exist, the only thing to do is to have a good time. 
Do whatever we can to enjoy life. Just live for pleasure. Let's just party hard. Hashtag YOLO. Hashtag best life. Hashtag FOMO. Hashtag I will just pursue whatever makes me feel good. That was the Epicureans. A worldview very much alive in our world today. But then there was another worldview. There was another direction that the philosophers went. And we see this one in our world today as well. This other group was called the Stoics. And the Stoics, they seemed a bit more respectable. They seemed a bit more noble than the Epicureans. What the Stoics said was, even though there are no answers, we must actually live as if there are. Even though there is not a grander purpose to life, even though there is not an objective right or wrong, we must live as if there is. We must be moral and kind and generous and good people because if we are not, the world will become a horrible place. There are no answers, but let's live as if there are. Let's take up the cause of justice and truth. Let's make the world a better place. Let's work towards doing what's right for others. Even though our worldview does not even allow us to define justice and truth and what is right, we'll live as if it does. Friends, I see this all over our world today. People, and, it, and again, and, it, and just like it did back in the first century, it feels good and right and it feels noble. People who are so passionate about what they see as injustice, so passionate about what is right and what is wrong, giving their lives for a moral code that their worldview does not even support. It's the Stoics. And so here's the point, friends. Right in the middle of a culture that was hotly debating what is existence all about? What is the source of truth? What determines morality and the meaning of life? What is the logos? John writes right into the middle of that conversation, right into the middle of that struggle, right into the middle of that debate, and he says this, we can know about the logos. And not just know about the logos, but the Logos himself, because the Logos is personal. That's what John says is true. But the question is this. The question is a bit more personal. The question is, is it true for you? Not just, is Jesus the Logos? That is true. That is emphatically true. The scriptures declare that it's true. But the question is, is Jesus your Logos? Is he behind the meaning of your life? Or do you just say that on Sundays, but the rest of the week, you're practically an Epicurean. You worship on Sundays, but then Monday through Saturday, you live for pleasure. You just do what feels good. You live selfishly. You just enjoy life while you're here. Sometimes I fall into that, friend. Sometimes I forget about my logos. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're just a stoic. You're here and you are a good, moral person who tries to live a just and righteous life, but underneath it all, there is actually no real faith relationship with Jesus. You're just a moralist with no sort of foundation to your soul. Maybe you're living like a stoic. Friends, we stand, John says, we stand in awe of the manger because the one who we encounter there is the eternal logos and meaning of life. Stand in awe. The logos 
is made flesh. Second John says, stand in awe because Jesus is divine. Listen to these words. Some of the most controversial words ever written. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is a remarkable statement. Because one of the most mysterious and beautiful beliefs that followers of Jesus have had about him throughout the centuries is that God is triune. That he exists as one and yet three. It is mysterious. It is on some level completely unexplainable. But that we worship a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And here, John, in one of the most poetic ways possible, communicates this truth to us. And he tells us something about Jesus. He says he, he both is God and is with God at the same time. That he is actually divine and that he's relationally connected to the vine all at once. You see, here's the truth, friends. One of the key questions the Bible will force you to answer is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's a big question for us in this in this uh, holiday season. It's a big question that will float around in the minds and hearts of people. Who is this baby born in Bethlehem? And there are lots of answers out there. The secular world will tell you that he was just a religious teacher or a, a rebel leader that the Romans put to death. If you go to a Muslim mosque and ask the imam who is Jesus, he will tell you that Jesus is a man, a created man who became a great prophet. If you ask a Hindu, they might tell you that Jesus is a man who through karma and reincarnation entered higher and higher levels of enlightenment. If you go to a Mormon temple and ask who is Jesus, they will say that Jesus is a man, a created being who became a God. And if you go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, nope, never mind, you won't have to go to them, they will come to you. And they will actually, and they will actually open the Bible to this very text to these verses that we read this morning. And they will tell you that the correct Greek translation is not in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. They will say the right translation is and the word was a God. I'll have all sorts of reasons for you. Now, just as a side note, I was reading an article this week about how to respond to Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your door. And I have blown this a few times and punched them in the face with my pastor knowledge. But the author suggests you simply say this, and I quote, While neither of us understands the technicalities of Greek grammar well enough to discuss this matter intelligently, the overwhelming and vast majority of Greek scholars point to the inconsistency of the New World Translation, that's the Jehovah Witness Bible, and affirm the translation as it appears in every other literal modern translation. Furthermore, friends, you could talk about the other places where Jesus clearly claims to be and declares and doesn't argue with the fact that he is God. You know, one thing that's interesting is that in the very first few centuries, the big debate about Jesus wasn't, was Jesus God? It was, was Jesus human? You see, that's a, that's a really, really convincing thing for me. The people, the early followers, the people who had experienced and been around Jesus most, they were quite clear that he was God. The question was, was he human? 
Like, he was obviously God, but was he a man? Friends, time and time and time again, Jesus openly, Jesus emphatically, Jesus publicly, Jesus unapologetically, Jesus clearly, Jesus repeatedly said, I am God. Later in John's gospel, in the 10th chapter, Jesus, this is one of my favorite scenes, Jesus is in conflict again with the religious leaders He's at the temple and he's asked about who he is and his his response is this. I and the Father are one. That's a Trinitarian answer if you've ever heard one. I and the Father are one. And then listen to this. Listen to the response. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So friends, John is telling us, yes, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Stand in awe, because the one in the manger is in fact Emmanuel, God with us. Awe. Next, John says, stand in awe, because... Jesus is creator. Friends, when we read these opening verses, we must not miss the very deliberate echo of the creation story in Genesis. Do you hear it? In the beginning, in in Genesis it reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so John says, in the beginning was the word He goes on to say, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And he's telling us that the one born in Bethlehem is the author of all creation. Now, let me tell you why this matters for you. Let me tell you why this matters so much. Let me give you an illustration to help you understand it. Imagine that you are in a poetry class. For some of you, that is a stretch outside of your comfort zone. But imagine that you are in a poetry class, and there's a whole bunch of you in this class, maybe eight students, and you're all sitting around a table with the teacher, and you're talking about a specific poem, and people are sharing their opinions about the poem, and you're talking about, what does this poem mean? What is this poem trying to say? What is this poem about, and what is it communicating? And there are a lot of different ideas being shared, and thoughts from different people, and every single time someone shares, there's discussion, but everyone's opinion is considered. Everyone's opinion is valid. People have different ideas, but there's a general consensus that any of us really could be right. But then, imagine if all of a sudden, right in the middle of this conversation, right in the middle of your class, the author of that poem walked in and said, oh yeah, I wrote that poem 20 years ago, and here is what it means. Let me tell you what it is all about. You see, now all of a sudden, the discussion is over. Now there is no more debate because the author knows, the author has authority on what the poem is about because the author wrote it. This is why the word authority comes from the word author because the author, the creator, is the one who knows a thing's true meaning and purpose. Friends, John is saying this, that Jesus Christ is the author of your life. 
that he's the author of this world, that he's the author of the universe, that he created you to live and think and act and be a certain way. And he has authority on what your life should be about. Why? Because he authored you. You see, a lot of people have opinions about what life should be about, about what your life should be about. Maybe you even have opinions about how you can or should live. But here's the question. Did you create yourself? Do you have the authoritative opinion of the author? I would argue no. I would argue that God knows who you are and what you were created for more than even you do. Well, it's my life and I should be able to It's my life, and I should be able to act however I want. It's my life, I should be able to talk however I want. It's my life, I should be able to watch whatever I want or spend my money however I see fit or devote my time and energy to the things that I choose. It's my life, I should be able to express my sexuality however I please. Well, okay, you are entitled to your opinion, but John is saying this, the one who wrote you, the one who created you, the one through whom all things were made, he has some thoughts too. And he knows you better than you even know yourself. Stand in awe because the baby born in Bethlehem is the author and creator of all things, including your very life. That is a powerful concept. Finally, John says this, stand in awe because Jesus is the life giver. In him was life. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. In a couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time talking about light, but I want to talk about life this morning. 36 times in John's gospel, more than in any other book, the word life is used. Life. You see, for John, Jesus is not just the original creator. He is the recreator. John is telling the story not just of the first creation, but of the recreation we have in Jesus. He created you. He gave you life initially, but now he wants to recreate you and offer you new life, true life, abundant life, the life that you were created and designed to have. In the movie Ben-Hur, kind of an old famous movie, Ben has been imprisoned by the Romans, and as he's being taken to this galley ship where he was going to be forced to row, on the way there, he drops to the ground because he is utterly exhausted. And as he lies there on the ground, he cries out to God. He just says, God, help me. Some of you will remember this scene. In that moment, Jesus, the film actually never shows his face, only his back, but you, you know that it's Jesus. Jesus appears and he reaches down to give Ben-Hur a drink. Well, a Roman soldier who's guarding the scene sees this. He begins to yell at Jesus to leave the man alone. And then he comes over and he raises his whip to strike Jesus. As he does this, Jesus turns and he looks at the soldier who is suddenly immobilized. The soldier stands there for a moment, his whip in hand, just gazing and looking at the face of Jesus. He is in utter and complete awe. He's just paralyzed. He's just mesmerized by him. Then, slowly, he lowers his whip. He turns and he walks away. And the effect of this scene, the point the director is trying to make 
is that an encounter with Jesus Christ, a face-to-face real encounter with Jesus Christ will stun and soften the heart of even the hardest man. No one can resist his beauty and grace and majesty if you truly meet him face-to-face. It will soften every single human heart. And so friends, let me ask you this morning, how about your heart? Has your heart been softened by an encounter with Jesus? Has your heart been softened by an encounter with Jesus? How long has it been since you've looked intently into his face? Have you, for yourself, found grace and truth and life and peace in the author and creator of your soul? Have you met the one who wrote you? Do you know the divine Lagos who can and will give your life meaning and significance and purpose in this cold and often empty world in which we live? You see, John is telling us so very clearly that this is not just a holiday season. Hear me on this, church. That there is so much more to December than lights and tinsel and tapestry, that these songs we sing are not just familiar Christmas carols, but choruses of worship and praise to the divine author and creator of the universe who has come to recreate joy and peace and light in your life and in mine. John is saying to you and me this year, in this moment, in this passage, don't you dare miss it. Don't you dare minimize it. Instead, church, fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices. Recognize that Jesus is divine. Stand in awe of the baby in the manger. Stand in awe. Are you in awe this year? Are you in awe with your Lord and King? Are you in awe with the one who has come to recreate your life and give your heart what it most deeply desires? Do you know him this year? Have you forgotten him this year? Are you distracted from him this year? Are you pushing him away this year? Are you rejecting him this year? Is sin keeping you an arm's length from him this year? Do not let anything keep you from this baby born in the manger because he is the king of the universe and he calls you to come and stand in awe. So this morning, I invite you to lead your heart in that direction again as we come to the tables, as we come to take the bread and to take the cup and to remember that this baby born in the manger would die, that he would give his life that his body would be broken, that his blood would be shed so that we could enter into relationship with God once more so that we could be part of the larger story that God has prepared for us. Take a few minutes, just take a minute and think about your relationship with Jesus, who he is to you. Not just in a general sense, but who he truly is to you today. This week, this month, and this season of your life. Reconnect with him. Embrace him again. Come to the table. Take the bread. Take the cup. And stand in awe. Father, thank you this morning for your grace and for your love and for the truth, the deep, rich truth of who you are. May who you are and may the fact that you have come to earth for us, may it 
rattle us and shake us and give us peace and hope and joy and comfort. Pull us in again, Lord. Holy Spirit, pull us in again to your real presence that we'd experience you in a fresh and new way again this season. And we pray all of it in the wonderful and blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.